All right, well, good morning, and it's good to see all of you. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Nahum chapter 2. We have two weeks left preaching through this book in the Old Testament, the book of Nahum. You can find Nahum 2 in the verse we're going to be picking up it on, on page 783 in a Blue Pew Bible, if you want to follow along uh, with us there. Well, I'll start this way. Um, for those of you who maybe do a lot of public speaking as part of your job or your vocation or in teaching, uh, maybe you majored in communications or in education, or maybe you've received some kind of coaching for public communication for whatever reason. Um, it's likely that you've been taught the uh, use of well-placed rhetorical questions in your speaking. The value of a good rhetorical question in your speaking. Because a question, when, when, when asked well in the midst of speaking, it grabs the attention of the listener, uh, it helps to explain or maybe illuminate a complex issue in a, in a more reachable way, and um, hopefully, if it's effective, it will build some anticipation for the information that's going to answer that question. Um, uh, most of the best speeches in history uh, usually have um, well-placed questions. Uh, you can think about JFK in his 1961 inaugural address when he said, My fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask, what can you do for your country? Um, in the same decade, you have the famous speech uh, that Martin Luther King gave in Washington, D.C., commonly known as the I've Had a Dream speech. But he said near the beginning of that and covered a lot of kind of wide-reaching issues in that entire speech. But he starts with it this way asking those who are uh, devotees of the civil rights movement uh, that were gathered there, he says, when will you be satisfied? When will you be satisfied? And then he built up, built up to eventually say what everyone was thinking. We will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Uh, which some of you know is a quote from the Bible, from the book of Amos, another prophetic book. And I think the reason why questions are an effective communication device is because all people are made in the image of God. And God is the ultimate communicator. Meaning, among other things, God is the ultimate question asker. The first question that God asks in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 3. Following the sin of Adam and Eve when they hid themselves in the garden. Genesis 3, 9 says this. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? First question. God asks to mankind. That's the first question. And I would say the most important question in the Bible comes from the mouth of Jesus. When he was walking with his disciples, wondering along the road what people on the street are saying about him. Who do people say that I am, he would ask. And to which they gave him some different answers. Some people say this, some people say that. And then he stops and he turns to them and he says to his disciples, Matthew 16, verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? We have the first question from God. We have the most important question from God. God gives questions to his people throughout Scripture to assure them. He gives questions to his enemies to convict them. And a rhetorical question allows the listener to go from consuming information to producing information. That's what happens when you're listening to somebody speak. That when you're listening to them, you're consuming what they have to say to you. But the moment they ask a question, they go from consuming to producing. Now you're producing information. And it sharpens a point when done right. And God always does it right. And so in our passage this morning, I say all that to say this, that it is bookended with two rhetorical questions at the start in Nahum 2, 11, 
And then two more rhetorical questions at the end in Nahum 3, verse 7. Questions that will lead to God's righteous judgment to condemn the wicked. We're talking about judgment this morning. To declare victory over evil. And then ultimately, to draw people to himself as the only true and able one through which we can have life. That's where these questions will lead us. And we're going to pick it up in Nahum chapter 2, verse 11. This verse comes right on the heels of verse 10, which we covered last week. When the city of Nineveh has fallen and they've been plundered, the enemies of God's people have fallen. Now we pick it up in verse 11. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of young lions? Where the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were, with none to disturb? The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Chapter 3. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. The crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot. Horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Verse 5. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? As I said, going into it, this passage, it comes right on the heels of a battle account that we looked at last week in verses 1 through 10 which showed in stages how God raised up the Babylonians to come and overtake the Assyrians and their capital city, Nineveh. The powerful Assyrian empire is fallen. This is prophetic. This is going to be happening into the future. And we know from history it indeed happened. But now, verse 11, it's a declaration of victory. It is a sort of a divine taunting. This is a divine taunting over evil now that the city's been ransacked, their people have been exiled, and the wealth has been plundered. Um, last week I said that in this battle, God orchestrated a reversal. Right? A city once so prestigious, um, so powerful, so wealthy, has now been emptied and laid waste. And this reversal is also now seen in this divine taunt. Where now is the lion's den? Where are you now? Where is the lion that once had nothing to fear? The one who tore his prey to pieces and filled his dens with the prey. Here's where I want to show you the reversal. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but in 2 Kings chapter 18, we'll have the verses up on the screen, we read the account of how the king of Assyria, his name was Sennacherib, besieged the capital of God's people in Judah. That's likely around that time, which is recorded in 2 Kings 18, 19, 20, when the book of Nahum was written. And the city of Jerusalem at that time was led by a guy named King Hezekiah. And Sennacherib sent a message besieging the city to be proclaimed out to the people of Judah. So he sends a message to be proclaimed to the people of Judah. And this is the, uh, the, the message. And it will be up on the screen. 2 Kings 18, 
I think this is starting in verse 28. Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. And then down to verse 33. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods? You see the taunt? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharphim, Hena, and Iva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. The king of Assyria is taunting. Where? Who? Who's going to save you now? And now, God orchestrates a reversal. And he says, where is the lion now? The one who terrorized other nations. Who's going to comfort them now? One of the foundational aspects of reading and studying a passage, when you, if you're reading this on your own, studying on your own, you're studying with a group um, to extract its meaning, to apply it to your life, what's this mean for my life today? Like you, you study a passage with that intent in mind. Um, one of the kind of Bible reading 101 is this. Observe what gets repeated. What in the passage gets repeated? Because an author is always going to repeat that, which they want to emphasize most. And this divine taunting in Nahum leads to a declaration in chapter 2, verse 13, where Nahum records the Lord's words to Nineveh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. And then that phrase connects chapter 2 to chapter 3, where God pronounces judgment upon Nineveh, starting in verse 1. Woe to the bloody city. Right? Woe is a judgment word. Woe to the bloody city. And then he recounts the graphic details of the way Nineveh would destroy other nations. In the following verses, you don't even have to unpack them. You just kind of read them and just feel them. And then he recounts their war crimes and their cruelty. And then that leads to the repeated declaration in verse 5. This time with even more authority because it's done a second time. Starting with, behold, I am against you. And then he explains in graphic detail the way he will judge them. I am against you. That's a judgment phrase. It's a final verdict for Nineveh. They would never be heard of again, lost to history. And I want us to see this morning how God's judgment, when rightly seen, um, can bring conviction for sure, but also for God's people, it can bring comfort and courage. And we're going to see three things out of this judgment passage. Number one, a declaration of judgment. Number two, the reason for judgment. And then finally, number three, the grace in judgment. Declaration of, reason for, and grace in, starting with number one, a declaration of judgment. Nahum 2 and Nahum 3, which is much of the book, it's only three chapters in this book, with this phrase as the anchor, I am against you, leads us to consider what it would be like for the God of the universe to be against you. What would it be like for the God of the universe to be against you. And if you're like me, our natural inclination is to push back against those thoughts or being encouraged to think those thoughts, and understandably so. We don't like judgment passages. Uh, the reality is they come up far more often than we realize if you were to read the Bible. 
that you'll, you'll read about judgment far more than you'd like to admit you're reading about it when you read through the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament. And, and today, I'd say, and I'd admit, they are probably relatively undertaught compared to the other aspects of God and the gospel. I'll be honest with you, I don't like preaching them. Don't love it. One of the reasons, one of the many reasons why we preach through books of the Bible, so I don't avoid passages that I wouldn't love to preach on my own. I, I would much rather keep the judgment of God as something that's kind of, you, you, you can reference from time to time, uh, you can apply, but, but don't stare at it. And the question is, why? The question I have to ask myself is, why? Why, by and large, do we not like them? And this is the kind of the road we have to go on to kind of unpack our own minds and hearts, right? Even if we like it in the sense that God is judging evil. We like it in the sense of Nahum 2, and God is judging Nineveh, like a bloody city like Nineveh. Or we like it when a criminal who has abused children, or someone who has murdered innocent people, or a terrorized group went and ransacked a city. When they receive judgment, when they receive a guilty verdict, we like it. And we know in reality, we want a God of judgment. We need a God of judgment. Uh, the, the, the desire for justice is deep down in all of us. Uh, we are desperate for a God who judges. Because we know when pressed that a world without judgment is terrifying. A world without justice is terrifying. Where, where evil would go rampant and sin would go unhindered. Not only at the levels of maybe governments and authorities in this world, but, but a world without a judgment of God is terrifying. Uh, there's a guy named out in California, Derek Rishmay. I'm not exactly sure how to say his name. He wrote an essay called, You Want a God of Judgment. And the reason why there's an essay written like that, that got published and a lot of people read, is because we often don't realize we want a God of Judgment. And here's a quote from his passage, from his essay. He says, In a world crooked and ruined with rebellion, I think deep down we all know we need a God who feels indignation every day. We know it would be a greater tragedy if God never visited for these things. We would be terrified to discover he was an unrighteous judge who never condemned, never punished, never dealt with the crimes of the world, which is no judge at all. So we got to think about this in kind of two planes. Deep down, we know we need it. And in a sense, we want it. But it's still hard for us. I want to offer maybe one reason why it's hard for us. is because in a very real sense, it challenges what we say we believe. And what I mean by that is that when we are confronted with a thought, do we really believe there is judgment for us on the other side of this world? Not only for us, but for all of our loved ones. That everybody you meet, there's a day coming on the other side of this world when they will stand before the Lord and be judged. Do we really believe it? And I think these passages kind of challenge whether or not we actually believe it. And we know that for those who have assurance in Christ, and the blood of Christ, we need not fear judgment. But we do fear judgment for our loved ones who do not yet know him, or we're not sure if they know him. To think about what will happen to them when they come before the Lord, that can feel almost overwhelming for us to have to think about it. That's why we don't like it. And so, so this might sound strange for us, but I think um, that understanding judgment is a vital part of your spiritual formation. That if you want to grow as a mature believer, that is going to include, it's not only going to be this, but it's going to include being able to pause and reflect deeply on the judgment of God to grow you. 
knowing that God's justice is distinct from God's love and from his other aspects and his mercy and his, and his, and his uh, grace. It is distinct from those things, but it is deeply connected to it. You cannot separate. It's like two sides of the same coin. And God just declared in his word to Nineveh twice, Behold, I am against you. He will not allow them to continue to do what they have been doing. Their time has run out. And, and, and maybe you think like me, like, why did it not happen until now? Uh, both, both in history and, and, and current, when, there, when there's real evil in the world, why does God permit it to go for so long? Like, like why, why was the Assyrian Empire able to just, uh, just to rip apart its prey in that graphic language of being like the lion? Why, why were they allowed to do this for so long? My honest answer is, I don't know. And I wrestle with that. But this decoration is sure. And it reminds me of um, a sermon that Jonathan Edwards, a Puritan out in the uh, 17th century, is most well known for. Maybe like me, you, you first learned this in middle school English class. I don't know why I learned it there, but that's where I learned it. Jonathan Edwards, he uh, preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he speaks to this point to his church several hundred years ago. And this quote will be up on the screen. That the reason why they are not fallen already and do not fall now is only that God's appointed time has not come. For it is said that when that due time or appointed time comes, their foot shall slide. Then they shall be left to fall as they are inclined by their own weight. God will not hold them up in these slippery places any longer, but will let them go. And then at that very instant, they shall fall into destruction as he that stands on such slippery declining ground on the edge of a pit, he cannot stand alone. When he is let go, he immediately falls and is lost. Uh, this is probably Edward's most well-known sermon, in some ways, unfairly. I remember reading about him in, again, middle school, and growing up a Christian in a pastor's home, thinking like, Jonathan Edwards, man, must have been a real fun guy. It's tough to overcome that. But not only did he speak of judgment in a way that was only true, but it would cause you to reflect. And would go on in my later years, college into young adulthood, that Jonathan Edwards actually wrote most um, about the religious affections and a love for God and his grace, I think in some ways more powerfully and more articulately than anybody else in church history. But that leads us to number two. From a declaration of judgment to number two, what is the reason for judgment? Why? Why is this the case? What causes God to say the words, I am against you? It's not about what country you're from, what people group you're a part of. It's not about generations behind you. When God casts judgment every single time, he is judging one thing. He is judging sin. God says, I am against you because of sin, which leads to question number two. What is sin? What is sin? It's one of those words, churchy words, that are so familiar, and yet if you're asked to define it, say, what is it? I want to offer a definition for you. Sin is acting or behaving in a way that does not conform to God's character or commands. I'll say it again. Sin is acting or behaving in a way that does not conform to God's character or commands. I think you could put it this way in light of Nahum chapter 2. Sin is us saying to God, I am against you. I'm against you, God. 
saying to God in the way we act and the way we behave, you don't get to make the rules here. Not in this case, not in this situation. And I am able to decide what is right and wrong for myself. God, I am against you. All right, so let's think about this in terms of our justice system today. Um, We all know that we have a series of laws in our country at every single level. You got the federal laws, you got state laws, you got town laws, you got school laws. If you work in a company, you got organizational laws. If you live in a family, you got family rules, right? So let's say this. Let's say after church today, uh, you're taking advantage of some lesser traffic on the roads in Burton County on a Sunday. You know that the colors have changed on the leaves. It's kind of peak color of the fall. And so you want to take a drive, and you want to just head up 17, up to the throughway, up to upstate New York. You want to enjoy the views, maybe do a little hiking, right, up at Harriman, keep going up to New Paltz. And you get on the highway, and the moment you merge onto the highway, you see a sign, speed limit, 65 miles per hour. What is that? That is a standard. That is a law that has been put in place because it has been decided that that is the optimal speed for people to go that would maximize efficiency while maintaining safety. Somebody decided 65 miles an hour, maximize efficiency while maintaining safety. Even if no one is on the road, the speed limit is 65. So the moment you decide, I don't wanna go 65. I wanna get there faster. I want to get there faster than normal because, I don't know, we just changed clocks and you're running out of daylight. And the sermon went long today, all right? So, like, you want to make up time. I want to go 90. What are you doing in that moment, the moment you go to 90? Even if it feels like a trite example, you are saying to the law, I am against you. I get to decide what is right for me. I'm running out of time. And so you break the law. Now, if you tragically, on the ride up to New Paltz, spin out of control and are coming around a corner and your car caroms across the lanes and you hit another car or two and people get injured and cars get totaled and the police come and what happens? An investigation takes place that you were going 90 around the corner and you went out of control and you've been found to have broken the law. At that moment, the justice system declares, I'm against you. And the law will come down on you and whichever consequences are fitting. Why? Why is the law saying I'm against you? Because you first said to the law, I'm against you. And in God's law, it's not just about legal rights and legal wrongs, but staying on that example, it's the fact that when we transgress God's law, when we sin, what happens? People get hurt. Destruction takes place. There's a rupturing of hearts. There's an there's a, there's a increase of suffering in people's lives. And we know our justice system in this world is imperfect at best, right? There are laws that are not just. There are lawmakers who have wrong incentives. And then there are systems that do not enforce the law or punish the law equitably. We know that. It is imperfect at best. But our God is the ultimate lawmaker. And he is perfectly just. And he has never gotten a case wrong. And his design for how our lives are to look is perfect. It maximizes his glory while maintaining the flourishing of his creation. Kind of like the speed limit maximizes efficiency while maintaining safety. God's law maximizes his glory while maintaining flourishing of his creation. And so we are human beings. 
And we are part of his creation. In fact, we are the climax of his creation because we are made in his image, but we are still part of his creation, which is called to live according to his right rule and his design. So to be a human is to operate within a system. Here's the system. It's a system of permissions and prohibitions. God's law is a system of permissions and prohibitions. Things God permits, meaning he calls us to. And things God prohibits, he calls us to resist. And God is far more than permissions and prohibitions, but they both exist. And we see this right away after he created Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2. I don't have this verse up on the screen, but just listen. When God said to Adam and Eve in Genesis 2, verse 16 and 17, he says this, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Permissions and prohibitions. There are far more permissions, but there are still prohibitions. And when we say to God in our actions and behaviors, I am against you, I'm against your permissions, I'm against your prohibitions, then in his perfect justice, he will say to us, behold, I am against you. And the effect of sin is judgment. And we saw in the garden, the, the rupture of the creative order brought the possibility and the reality of physical death and not just on the individual level, but, but physical death and the death and decay of a society. We see that right away as they begin to, the generations begin to pile up. The, the decay and death at a society level. People together now enter the realm of violence and greed and power hunger and hatred and war and the rise and fall of empires built on rebellion happening ever since. But most significantly, sin leads to death in the spiritual eternal sense. Not downplaying the physical sense, but ensuring we realize that the ultimate effect of sin is death in the spiritual eternal sense. That the height of judgment, the peak of judgment mountain, is to be expelled from the presence of God. And we taste that in part when we sin in this world. We taste that when there's that natural desire to run from God, to hide from him. To be away from his presence, which is why the first question God asks in the Bible to Adam is, where are you? Why are you hiding? Because that's what we do when we sin. Distance from him, distance from one another. And according to scripture, the more we sin, the more we hide from God. So sin cuts us off from his presence, and then the wages of sin is death. As Jonathan Edwards said, the Lord will in time let you go. Eternal separation, where God casts out of his presence. That is the effect of God saying, I am against you. This is why it's hard. This is why I come across the passage and I go, oh no. This is why it's hard and cringy to hear it sometimes. And it's the difficult thing about judgment, because on one hand, we all need it and we crave it. We'd be terrified to live in a world without it. And yet, on the other hand, we often will do everything we can to distract ourselves from it. From the reality of thinking about it for ourselves because it's uncomfortable at best and almost overwhelming at worst to think about it again, not just for ourselves, but for our loved ones who do not know Christ. And so a morning like this, when you can't get away from it and you're confronted with it full on, you can go one of two ways. From this morning, you can go one of two ways. One way is you can talk yourself out of it. 
slowly buy into some kind of alternative theology that says, yes, God will judge the really evil things in the world. He will judge the really bad ones, but he wouldn't judge fill in the blank. My son, my aunt who has cancer, my neighbor who's battling for their life, they're too nice. They've done too much good. They've done so much good. It would not be loving for God to judge them. And we wrestle with this fact that, that this has happened to you sometimes where, where you know non-believers in your life who are capable of being more caring than you, more compassionate than you, having more self-control than other professing Christians. In fact, you know professing Christians who are far worse than a lot of your non-believing friends and family. And you're wrestling with that. What do I do with that? And then so you land in a place where we say, God wouldn't really judge them, right? And what we're doing in that moment, even if we wouldn't use these words, is that we are convincing ourselves that good behavior offsets wrong belief. That good behavior will offset wrong belief. And not only do we do this to make us feel better, but it limits our urgency to live on mission to them. They'll be fine. God will, he'll understand. That's one way we can go from here. The second way is to lean into it. Not in a way that raises our anxiety, but that strengthens our prayer life for them and strengthens our evangelism to them. That's what it could look like to lean into the reality of the judgment of God. Not to raise anxiety, but to strengthen your prayer for them. To increase and strengthen your evangelism to them. That God in his sovereign grace reaches the lost through the prayers and the courage of the saved. And if you're a believer in the room this morning, that's your story. Someone in your life, by God's sovereign grace, through their prayers and their courage, shared with you. So to be in the right mindset with God's judgment is not to distract yourself from it so you never think about it in your lives or in the lives of others, but it's also not to be so obsessed with it to the point where it drains all joy and hope from your life. Rather, it's an awareness of God's judgment that moves you, an awareness that propels action, that fills you with compassion for the lost, courage for the lost, and a confidence that God is making all things new, and no person, city, or empire that goes against God's will will prevail. How can you have that compassion? How can you have that courage? How can you have that confidence? That leads to lastly, number three, the grace in judgment. Back to Nahum chapter 3. After God makes his declaration of judgment on Nineveh, he speaks about what it's going to look like for them to receive it. So he says, I am against you, and then he tells them, here's what it's going to look like for you. And it's graphic, and it's eye-opening. And look again at verse 5. Your Bible's open. I want you to see it. Look again at verse 5. I will make the nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. Nahum is a book written to Israel's enemies, to his people's enemies, to another nation, to another people group. But we have to realize this now, that in most of the other prophetic books in the Old Testament, major prophetic books, minor prophetic books, most of them, God is is saying these same things to Israel for their rebellion against him. 
There's a couple books like Nahum, which is spoken to their enemies, but the majority of them are spoken to God's own people. Because all people fall short of the glory of God. All people have said, I am against you to God, their creator. All people stand in line to receive those words back from God. I am against you. Doesn't matter your church background. Doesn't matter how holy you think you are. That all people, regardless of your background, your people group, your ethnicity, your race, sin and fall short of the glory of God. And the agony of that truth will usher, usher us in to the heart of the gospel. You cannot get to the heart of the gospel with first, without first walking that road of agony. That the only way, the only way to be delivered from the judgment of God is if God has made a way to deliver you. And while God is a God of judgment, he is not only a God of judgment. He's also the God who is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love. And how can those two things be true together? How can he by no means clear the guilty, but also be a God who is merciful and gracious? Here's how. Hear me. By placing the judgment due to us onto someone else. In God's grace, justice against sin does not get erased. It gets placed. In God's grace, justice against sin does not get erased. It gets placed. And it gets placed onto someone else standing in the gap. We're into November now, if you didn't know that. In a few short weeks, we'll be transitioning to a season of Advent. Advent is a season of waiting leading up to Christmas Day when we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, who is the perfect, sinless, eternal Son of God, taking on flesh. And he came to do something no one else was able to do. That he could come, stand in the judgment of God in our place. And so if your Bibles are open, I really want you to see this. Look again at Nahum 3. I so appreciate a woman named Nancy Guthrie, an author and theologian, for illuminating this for me. Look at the words God uses to describe Nineveh's judgment. Did you pick up on this? He says, I will make the nations look upon your nakedness, kingdoms at your shame. I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. Church, what does that remind you of? Jesus would be stripped naked. Jesus would be raised up to be hung on a Roman cross outside the city gates for all to see. Along a main highway connecting cities in the Roman Empire during the time of Passover when the city swelled with people from surrounding nations. That the Roman Empire wanted to make it public. This is what happens to criminals. With the nations passing by to see, spitting at him, ridiculing him. Church, what is that if not a spectacle? To the point where Jesus himself in his agony says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, the Bible says he endured the cross for the joy set before him. What? For the joy set before him. He agreed to be made a spectacle all the way to the end, even along the way saying, God forgive them for they know not what they do. And when Jesus said that, he wasn't just talking about them. He was talking about you. That he took the judgment of God so you can stand forgiven.
that he was made a spectacle to cover your shame. That he clothes you with righteousness and he removes the distance between you and the Father and you and one another and he makes you a son and a daughter. And the cross is an expression of both his love and his justice. And so when Jesus gets to the end and he says, it is finished, what he means is that for those who repent of their sin and place their trust in Jesus Christ, God is finished being against you. And now God is for you. Forever. And in Christ, he is your shelter. He is your hiding place. In Christ, Paul writes to begin Romans 8, there is now no condemnation. There is no condemnation for those in Christ. For you've been set free from sin. You've been set free from death. And so I began this morning with saying that the power of rhetorical questions can make a point. It can make the listener move from consuming information to producing information. And God finishes his judgment on Nineveh with these questions. Who will grieve for her? Where should I seek comforters for you? But brothers and sisters, for those hidden in Christ, you get a new set of rhetorical questions. You get a new set of questions. And I want to finish this morning with the new set of questions you get from Romans chapter 8. Um, they, they, they are going to be on the screen, but actually I want to change it. I want you to close your eyes. Okay, everyone just close your eyes. Let these new questions that you receive in Christ wash over you. Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us for gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all the creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we... We thank you for your word. We thank you for your word when it carries weight. When it contains a passage that not only makes us uncomfortable, Lord, but that can make us fearful. And so, Father, I pray for everybody in the room this morning, Lord, that we would travel the road together. Travel the road of God, you being against us, to you being for us. By your grace. Nothing in us that earned it, that deserved it. But that you place the judgment on us, onto your son, Jesus Christ, Lord. For the joy set before him. And when he declared victory over the cross, by rising from the grave, you've invited us to be hidden in him. To be found in him. 
to now be part of your body and to be your mouthpiece in this world, to love, to serve, to have compassion, and yes, to have courage. And so I pray, Lord, that you would embolden our prayers, embolden our mission, keep our eyes fixed upon you. And I pray especially for anybody this morning, Lord, who knows that they have been outside of you, Lord, that they have not been hidden in Christ, that today would be the day that the eyes of their heart would be opened, that they know they are invited to repent of their sin and to trust in you, to trust in you, to transform their lives from the inside out. Father, let it be. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and respond in song before the Lord's Supper.